Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, for our 50th episode, I'm honored to have on as my guest, a mentor of mine, Dr. Michael Gitlin. Dr. Gitlin is a distinguished professor of clinical psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. He is currently the director of the adult division in the Department of Psychiatry, medical director of the Neuropsychiatric Behavioral Health Services, and director of the Mood Disorder Clinic at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Hospital. From 1980 until 2004, he was a medical director of the Aftercare Clinic, a research clinic in schizophrenia. He's the author of over 160 scientific articles and book chapters, as well as five books, including two editions of a solo-authored psychopharmacology textbook written for non-physician therapists entitled The Psychotherapist's Guide to Psychopharmacology, published by the Free Press, the co-author of Psychotropic Drugs and Women with Dr. Victoria Hendrick, the co-author of Clinician's Guide to Bipolar Disorder, Integrating Pharmacology with Psychotherapy with Dr. David Miklovitz, and the co-author of The Essential Guide to Lithium Treatment with Dr. Michael Bauer. He served as Chief of Staff at the Neuropsychiatric Hospital from 1997 to 1999. Among his awards are Distinguished Educator Award in Teaching from the UCLA Department of Psychiatry, Outstanding House Staff Teaching Award, Teacher of the Year from the Psychiatric Times, Dedone Clinical Teaching Award from the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and the Leonard Tao Humanism and Medicine Award from the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Today, we draw from his over 40 years of clinical work and talk about the shifts of treatment and mood disorders over time. Welcome, Dr. Gitlin. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah. So we were talking about what we should discuss because you are a wealth of knowledge, I think, in terms of just your experience and everything you've done in the field of psychiatry. And we've talked about, I think the best topic to kind of focus on today would be to talk about mood disorders and anxiety disorders and how that's changed over time in terms of your clinical experience in the field. In many ways, it's changed a great deal. And in many ways, it really hasn't changed much at all. Let me first talk about the ways in which it's changed. So I started doing a lot of psychopharmacology in the late 70s. So that's 40 something years ago. And at the time, almost everything we prescribed for ill patients was potentially lethal and overdose, had terrible side effects. I mean, patients frequently could tolerate them, but it was, it was a wild and woolly time. Over these many decades, we have some treatments that are more effective, but more importantly, we have treatments that are safer and have fewer side effects. So in, in depression, as an example, 19, late 87 was the magic year when Prozac, fluoxetine, was the first of the second generation antidepressants to come out. And there have been 12, 13, 14 since then. But from then on, all the antidepressants that came out were much better tolerated than all the antidepressants that were out before them. And the tolerability is not just an abstract notion because back in the old days, it was really hard to get a depressed person to be on an adequate dose so the damn stuff would help them. And now it's not so hard. Now there are still patients 
who are very sensitive to side effects, who of course can't tolerate the antidepressants, but so many more people can tolerate them. Second difference is what you can call the spectrum of efficacy. So in the old days, the antidepressants, the tricyclics, the MAO inhibitors were the two major early classes. Mostly they treated depression. Now, let's say the SSRIs or what are called the SNRIs, effects or Cymbalta medications like that, are equally effective in treating anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. The old antidepressants did none of those. So we have much broader spectrum agents, and that's a big deal. By the way, it's true also if you look at mood stabilizers, which we use for bipolar disorder, as well as for treating psychosis. So in the old days, we had lithium or lithium. That was it. And right around the late 70s was the first study showing that the anticonvulsants, the first one was carbamazepine or Tegretol, but then it was valproate or Depakote, Lamictal, which is the trade, the old trade name for Lamotrigine. And suddenly we had a whole other class of medicines that were useful as mood stabilizers to prevent both manias and depressions. So the fact that we had choices of medicines with different side effect profiles, again, did it make them more effective? No, but the fact that there are choices so that if you couldn't tolerate lithium in the old days, you were screwed. There was nothing else you could use. And now we have five or six medicines that we can easily choose from. By the way, I know our topic is mood, but the exact same statement can be made with psychosis. So prior to the early 90s, the first generation antipsychotics were terrifically effective, but boy, were they difficult medicines for patients to take. Lots of side effects, just such difficult medicines. And then starting in the early 90s, where the, everything that's come out since is not more effective, but it, with the exception of clozapine, um, which is more effective, but very difficult to tolerate. But all the other medicines are so much easier to tolerate. It has just been a game changer. So that's been a huge change. What's not changed is, as an example, for depression. So the first antidepressants came out in the 1950s, mid-50s. First tricyclic antidepressant, first MAO inhibitor. There has still not been any antidepressant medicine, I'm putting shock treatment, ECT aside, that is more effective than imipramine that came out in 56 or 57. So that, no pun intended, that's a little depressing that we don't have really more effective treatments. But again, the fact that we have more of them and they're so much safer and better tolerated is, I think, a very big deal. The other, I think, major change in the field, certainly for depression, so ECT, called shock treatment, although it has such a pejorative feel to that phrase, to that name, ECT was first discovered before the first antidepressants. At first, it was a very difficult and dangerous treatment. We didn't know how to use it safely. Now, we still use it a fair amount, and it's really safe but it was the first treatment that would be called a neuromodulation treatment. What's neuromodulation? 
It's something that directly affects brain function. So ECT is passing an electrical current through the brain. It's not medication. It doesn't affect the body. It just affects the brain. We now have a number of neuromodulatory treatments that we use, the most famous of which that's been around for, gosh, eight, nine years now and is used very frequently is TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It uses alternating currents to shoot a magnetic pulse into a very specific part of the brain, much safer and gentler than than ECT. You drive in for your TMS treatment, you drive out, you go to work, there's no cognitive impairment. I mean, it's no anesthesia. It's a different ball game. But the whole idea of using direct treatments on the brain as opposed to medicines, which are going to cause side effects everywhere, is also a sea change. And now TMS is a major player as part of what we use to treat depression, primarily in the outpatient world. And I think the third major change is the new hip treatments that we have, one of which is ketamine. Everybody knows ketamine. We all get endless calls about ketamine. Ketamine was, it's a sort of a sub-anesthetic, been used for pain for decades. It's an old generic drug. And about eight, nine years ago, for theoretical reasons, it was tried as a treatment, an intravenous treatment for treatment-resistant depression. And lo and behold, not only did it work, but it worked very quickly, like within hours. Antidepressant treatments by and large work over weeks, not hours. So ketamine is now an established treatment its close relative called S-ketamine, marketed as Spravato, is an FDA-approved treatment for treatment-resistant depression. And that's also exciting because biologically, it works nothing like all the prior antidepressants. And if we want to look forward a little bit, we think of things like the psychedelics, which were, of course, great drugs of use and abuse and fun in the 60s and 70s, the Grateful Dead. Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey, all that stuff. And it turns out that psychedelics may have a major place in the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. It would not be so surprising if between, let's say, five to 10 years from now, that psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, gets an FDA indication, albeit a restricted one, for treatment-resistant depression. So even though there's lots of ways in which things are not any better than they were, there really are a bunch of new things that I think treatments are safer, are less burdensome, and there's some fun stuff coming up the road. I get a lot of questions about these kind of newer treatments or use of ketamine or psilocybin. And you're talking about treatment-resistant depression. So we're talking about people with significant symptoms who haven't responded to different other medications. but I guess my question to you is, do you see that becoming more of a mainstream treatment for mild to moderate depression? Ketamine? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I don't think the FDA would be thrilled about that. The FDA, of course, is very focused, because this is their job, on safety. And ketamine is a potential drug of abuse. For years, you've been able to buy it on the Venice boardwalk as Special K. So because it's a potential drug of abuse and it makes people pretty loopy, called the side effects called dissociative effect. It doesn't make you psychotic, 
but it does make you very spacey. I don't know if it's ever going to become as much of a first-line player as really benign treatments like Prozac and Zoloft and Welbutrin and all the things that are the mainstay of of antidepressant treatment. Right. So you have a sense that those are really here to stay. Things like Prozac or Lexapro oh, yes. or Welbutrin, those are those are going nowhere as probably the first-line treatment. Now, of course, in the old days with tricyclics and MAOs, until Prozac came out in late 87, who knew that there would be a whole other class of antidepressants? So maybe in 15 years, we're going to have a benign class of antidepressants that's actually more effective than things like Prozac and Zoloft. And then they would be tossed aside as we do in the United States. But for the foreseeable future, I don't think they're going anywhere. I think I would like to hear you talk a little bit about efficacy. What are your thoughts about efficacy on the commonly used antidepressants? Okay. So from the first studies, again, way back 40, 50 years ago, antidepressants were thought to be about twice, if you take a bunch of outpatient depressed folk, actually inpatient or outpatient, that the efficacy rate was about 60% for those who were put on the active medicine and in these double-blind placebo-controlled studies where neither patients nor doctors knew who was on which medicine, so we wouldn't be biased, the average placebo response rate was about 30%. So 60% versus 30% is a 30% difference. And that was the classic finding. Over the next 30 years, which includes the era in which Prozac and Zoloft and Welbutrin and Celexa and Lexapro came out, the drug placebo differences in these kind of classically designed studies went from 30% to more like 18%. And that was driven not because the drugs did not work as well, but because placebo worked better. Mm. So placebo response rates correlate significantly with the year of the publication of the study, which means with every year inexorably, placebos got more and more effective. So if the drug response rate didn't get any greater, and the placebo response did, the difference goes down from 30 to 18%. Well, why would placebos get better? Were we giving better placebos, red ones versus tan ones, bigger ones versus smaller ones? There's a whole science of placebo response rate, but almost assuredly that wasn't the answer. Almost assuredly, once treating depression became a big business, and these are billion-dollar drugs, it became, of course, a great industry. And people, not just who were academically interested, but people who were financially interested were doing these studies. So if I was gonna pay you $5,000 for every patient you enrolled in the study, and you had to have a minimum depression score of 20, and your research assistant found a score of 19, what do you think you would do? The answer is you'd find another point. You wouldn't say, no, you're not depressed enough to be in the study. You'd somehow do it because your living depended on it. Now, that may sound like a cynical way of doing things, but it is the way the world works. So because the subjects who went into the studies were more heterogeneous, whereas in the 60s and 70s, they were really pretty severely ill, depressed people. Now we have milder and more broadly distressed people that they had more nonspecific placebo responses, meaning the drug placebo difference was less. Nonetheless, drugs do work. 
There are controversies. There are numbers of studies that come out with great regularity saying, you know what? It's not true. The drug placebo difference isn't really worth it. Antidepressants don't work. And that's simply untrue. The better data showing that it works. When we do these studies, we do it with these rating scales, the Hamilton Depression Scale, the Montgomery Asberg Depression Scale, et cetera. And they have between 10 and 26 items, and you add them up and you get a score. But a lot of them are nonspecific, like sleep or appetite, which could be a side effect from the medicine, as well as being a symptom of depression. If you look at the core depressive symptoms in those studies, which is just about mood, and suicidality and hopelessness, it's very clear that antidepressants are clearly better than placebo. The other major evidence is the many studies of what happens if you go on an antidepressant, you get better, and then months later, you get switched to placebo or stay on the drug, again, double blind. And every one of those studies show that antidepressant responders switch to placebo relapse at twice the rate as the people who stay on drug. So there are a lot of ways of looking at the efficacy of antidepressants. They are not the most effective drugs in the universe, but they are clearly effective. Yeah. And that brings, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but the one that just came to my mind, because patients ask me this all the time, especially ones that have never been on medication before. And I'm just curious how you respond to people to this question when people say, well, how long do I have to be on this for? There's a twofold answer. So the way you figure out how long in part somebody needs to be on a medicine is knowing about the natural history of the disorder. So if you knew that people would never have more than one episode of depression in a lifetime, you would treat that episode, you'd give it a little longer, I'll say what a little longer is in a minute, and then you take them off and never worry about it. But the majority of people with depression have either recurrent episodes or have chronic depression. So if somebody comes to me and they've already had four depressions, this is their fourth, I'm going to recommend that they stay on it long-term preventively. If it's their first episode, since a substantial minority of people will only have one episode, then I'm just going to treat the episode and then take them off. So in contrast, as an example, we have bipolar disorder, which is not universally recurrent, but awfully close to universally recurrent. So for bipolar disorder, the question about when should somebody be on maintenance long-term, don't ever get off at treatment, is a when, not an if. Whereas for regular depressed people, some should be on and some shouldn't. So for a single episode, the right answer is once you get better, so let today's March 1st, we're doing this taping, on March 1st, you get better somewhere around September 1st, which is six months from now, is when the patient and the doctor should have a discussion about whether they need maintenance treatment. If maintenance treatment is not needed, you would then taper it off at that time. There are two studies, one said four months, one said eight months, six months is about right. But day one is the, not the day you start treatment, but the day you and your doctor say, ah, I'm better. I'm there. You basically have trained me in the field of psychiatry. So I think, oh, I know all this stuff, but it's also, I'm glad to ask someone to, to describe it to the listeners as well. But in some ways, this has been kind of the easiest interview to do because this is the way I think. So 
<laughs> okay. But keeping to the theme, which I kind of went off track a little bit of changes in mental health treatment. So in your opinion, so in thinking about how the presentation of depression has looked as time goes on, right? In terms of just over the decades, does it look different? Does it feel different in terms of what people are describing? Does it feel like it's more common? I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Okay. So there are a number of issues there. First of all, back in the old days, the thought was that depression, not bipolar disorder, but depression was primarily an episodic disorder. You had an episode of depression, then you weren't depressed for a while, then you had another episode, et cetera. And somehow over the last 40 years, more and more individuals seem to present, and there are data in support of this feeling, that more and more people present with a more chronic waxing and waning course. So meaning you may still have times when it flares up and you have an episode of depression, but even when you're not in an episode, you have more depressed symptoms than somebody who, let's say, has no depression. So the chronicity seems to be more than it used to be. Unclear why. There were a series of what's called epidemiological studies. An epidemiological study is a study that doesn't depend on help-seeking. Because help-seeking, remember, is partially a social and cultural construct. So women seek treatment more than men. That's different than do women have more episodes of depression. They're just more likely to seek treatment. In fact, both are true. But in epidemiological studies, where you knock on every fifth door in the community and where you don't care whether somebody's seeking treatment, just trying to figure out what's the prevalence of a disorder in the neighborhood. And it did look that between the 80s to the early 2000s, that the prevalence, the epidemiology of depression seemed to go up. It may be that that's accurate, but it also could be in those studies, it's not trained clinicians who knock on the doors on Cleveland and Kansas City and St. Louis. It's college graduates who you teach how to do what's called a structured interview. But when you do that, they may do it reliably, but I guarantee, I guarantee that you, Josephine, and I could do a better job than a college student. If not, what have we been doing for all these years if we're not better than a college student at ascertaining depression? So it could be that just the way you teach that college graduate to ask questions shifted a little bit, and suddenly instead of 16% of the United States having depression, it's 23%. But it's not really, it's an artifact of measurement as opposed to reality. In your reality at UCLA, do you feel like the number of people seeking services, do you think that's increased? You know what? It's impossible for me to say because, again, that depends on things like help seeking and insurance, Mm -hmm. which is not about the disorder. I think the definition of depression has broadened. And so the wariness is that we are now including within that term things that 40 years ago we would have said, oh, that's neurotic stuff. And now we just call it depression. So we have to be careful. And as I sometimes obnoxiously say to patients and to some of my residents, the stuff I prescribe for depression, they are antidepressants, not anti-miserables. They do not treat all that ails humankind. And, you know, people vary between those who have these insane fantasies of what an antidepressant will do, like it treats way more than it realistically can to other people who are horrified and would never take an antidepressant. So we have both extremes out there. 
Well, I wonder if one thing that has changed is quality of life for somebody who has diagnosed major depression or bipolar disorder, right? In terms of ability to live their life in a way that's more meaningful or just a higher quality of life overall due to better treatments or more tolerable treatments, like is it better? Yeah. And I would say there, there are two answers to that. One, yes. As we have treatments that if they're not more effective or more tolerable, which means more people can take it and get well, of course, both what's called functional outcome, meaning can you hold down a job? Can you take care of your kid? Can you take care of your house? Do you have relationships? I mean, the core issues of function, that those must get better if more people are treated. And the other, just from the research point of view, there's something called quality of life. Function is somewhat objective. Are you working 40 hours a week? Are you taking four classes instead of two classes? Quality of life is that subjective sense that we have, am I leading a reasonable life? So both of those are clearly affected by depression, by bipolar disorder, et cetera. But our field has been clearly remiss in not focusing on things like functional outcome and quality of life. We've mostly spent our time and most of our studies are on symptoms. What percentage of people relapse, which is just based on symptoms, not on whether they're, can you take care of their kids or go to class? And you may ask, well, why is that? The answer is, it's much easier to measure. It's easy to say, how much sleep are you getting? How's your appetite? How's your energy? Function is a much more complex outcome variable and quality of life is even more subjective. But I would imagine that if I had these disorders or if a relative of mine, I would be much more interested in the quality of their life. Can they live a life as opposed to how many hours of sleep do they get? I think we've not always been measuring the right outcome variables. Right. It makes me think a question that I ask people before I start them on medication is, so let's say a month passes and you say you're doing better. What does that mean to you? What do you want that to look like? Right. right. And first off, that question is important because it makes me understand their expectations of what they're expecting to get for the medication, but also gives me something to kind of strive for. Right. And so when I meet them, we're thinking, okay, are we reaching, are we reaching that? Are we reaching the goal that you wanted for yourself on medication? Yeah, and I think that that is the broader way that we should all be measuring, both in research studies and in clinical work, outcome. The other, I think, interesting part of thinking about are you living the life that you'd want to live is we know that both for depressed people and for bipolar people, once they get symptomatically better, you know, our little checklists, and now they're not so depressed and they're sleeping okay and eating okay and they have energy, et cetera. Their functional improvement lags months and months behind symptomatic improvement. Now, a lot of hypotheses about why that is, but that's pretty replicable, that people get better before their lives go back to normal, Hmm. which is an interesting thought. But again, those are two different ways of measuring the efficacy of a treatment. And by the way, it would be just as true with a psychotherapy treatment as with a a medication treatment, right? Those are just different ways of treating people. But the question is, what's the goal of treatment? 
Is it to be less symptomatic or to have a fuller life? Or of course, both. So this is a broad question I want to ask because I'm wondering if the listener is wondering about this. Why use medication? Why not just focus on other treatments? It both has to do with if the other treatment works as well, but how long do the other treatments take and how expensive are they? Mm. Fact is, it takes less time to swallow a pill than to be in therapy, even if they're equally effective. And most of the medicines are much cheaper than psychotherapy is. So there are a lot of factors that go into why you would choose one treatment or another. And we do know that not so much for severe depressions, but for mild to moderate depressions, medication works, psychotherapy works, and medication plus psychotherapy works better than either one alone. Right. So we don't have to make that dichotomous choice of this or that. Right. Yeah. And I think it depends on what the individual is willing to do. Right. And so if they are not that excited about medication and they really want to try other treatment modalities, go for it if if it's going to work. Right. And if it's not working, then you have to say, you know, what are our other options here? And medication could be something that could actually get you closer to that point of where you want to be. Right. And patient preference, which is really what you're describing, is indeed a big deal. Right. If, if you don't want to be in therapy, oh, man, would that be a hard slog? And if you don't want to be on medication, you're going to find reasons not to take it. Mm-hmm. So we should be grateful for the fact that we have a, a variety of treatments from a variety of classes of treatments so that we can treat more people overall and hopefully decrease suffering. Yeah, well, that is the goal. And to not force people into doing what they don't want to do and meet them where they're at and kind of figure out what modality kind of fits with what they're wanting and and how to go with that. Into treatments they don't want to be in is never a great idea. It's difficult at best. Well, that also reminds me when I treat people, because I've had such success with antidepressants with patients. I mean, of course, there are people who don't respond, but a lot of people do respond quite well. And they come back to me and say, oh, I really wish that I had done this years ago. And my response to them is always like, but that wasn't the right time. You weren't thinking about it then. The right time was when you really decided that this was what you wanted to do. And maybe that felt you delayed it a little bit too much, but maybe it just was the right time. And that makes the most sense. Yeah, I concur completely. I've heard many patients say exactly that. Oh my God, my life would have been easier. But you know, who among us has led a perfect life with perfect judgment? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you had the time to talk to me today about your insights and experience. We kind of loosely connected kind of how things have changed over time. And I always learn something new when I talk to you. So I really appreciate it. I'm honored that you invited me. Oh, well, this is the 50th episode. So this is kind of a really important one. And I wanted to have someone who I really respect and I really felt that I've learned so much from beyond. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Any parting words before we go? Yeah, the one thing I would say is that What I have learned over the years is you don't think, all right, we're going to try this treatment and that's it. If the goal is getting people better, you try whatever needs to be tried to get better. And whether that's medication, whether it's psychotherapy, a combo of the two, TMS, 
It doesn't matter. This is not a religious issue. This is a medical issue. And our goal is to have people feel better and suffer less in their life and have a fuller life. So, you know, as, as you and I have talked about, Josephine, even though I'm known in the psychopharm world, in fact, is more than half my practice is psychotherapy. And I think it's invaluable for some people at some time. So again, we should get away from these religious fights mm-hmm. and keep our eyes on the prize, which is simply getting people better right. from whatever modality. It's a great way to end. Thanks so much for being on. You're very welcome. Take care. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.